If you would, pray with me, please. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As I said during the children's time, I really do want to wish all of you a happy Mother's Day. Whether you admit it or not, each of you are quite good at mothering us. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that. (laughs) You do. Uh, I was thinking this past week, uh, different times in which y'all have mothered us since we have been here. And some of my favorites are the times in which y'all taught us how to pick out real winter coats, and also uh, times in which you've told us what has intentionally been planted in our yards and what has not. (laughs) They seem like simple things, but they're things that we needed. And you were there for us, and you were mothering us. And on a daily basis, that's what you do. Because that's you, and you care. And so we thank you on this day. We do appreciate you. I find Mother's Day to be one of the hardest Sundays for a church to prepare for. My number one rule, personally, for what a church should be is for it to be a safe place meaning it's a place not only where everyone feels safe and welcome, but a place where there's no judgment, there's no stress, no worry, a place where love is lavished on everyone, a place where you feel belonging, a place you know without any doubt is safe. So on Mother's Day... When we join together as a whole, it's hard for me to make sure everyone feels safe, that everyone feels loved, that everyone knows they are worthy. You are worthy. You are needed as a part of this community, and you belong here. I know some today will feel pain. Some in our midst have children that are incarcerated and can't be with them today. Some have lost children this year. Some have lost their mothers this year. Some choose not to have any children. And it's this day each year that they feel ostracized because of it. It's a hard day for a lot of people. And for me, being a pastor, wanting this day to be a good day for everyone, where everyone is honored, everyone is respected, everyone knows they are cherished, it's hard. And I hope our responsive reading today helped to aid in throwing comfort and lavish love all over you, because you are loved, and you are appreciated in all that you do. So thank you. It comes at no surprise to us that long before there was ever a holiday known as Mother's Day, 
women were still feeling the pressure of inadequacy, of failure, for not birthing a child. In our first text today, we encounter two women. Two women who are married to the same man. Monogamy was not established as the only acceptable practice in their society, so it's not as Jerry Springer as it sounds. In fact, in, there are many biblical figures that had multiple wives. There's Abraham, Jacob, David. Wives in their society were valued when they bore children. Children carried on the family legacy, the family traditions. They tended the family land. If your wife didn't bear children, you took a second wife. If your second wife did not bear children, you took a third wife. We've seen this in Genesis with Sarah and Hagar and with Rachel and Leah. Yet this tidbit of information not only tells us about the culture and the time this story took place, but it sets up the stage for what we're about to hear. Not to our surprise, as we finish verse 2, we learn that Elkanah's second wife, Penina, is described as having children. Usually, if you got to a reading and you saw a second wife, that was what they did. They bore the children. Wasn't a surprise there. The first wife, Hannah, is then described as having none. You're starting to pick up on the dynamics of this family, I hope. Panina, the second wife, whom Elkanah never refers to as the one he loves, is listed first for bearing children, while Hannah, the wife that Elkanah loved, is listed last. Again, this is painting a picture of this family and the dynamics that are taking place in this society. Scroll on down to verse 6, and the picture becomes even clearer. The text reads, her rival. It's not a coincidence that that word is being used. It's very intentional. Her rival used to provoke her severely and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. You can see the family dynamics at place. Hannah is the wife in which the husband loves. Panina is the wife in which society is valuing. And there's tension. Panina wants all of Elkanah's attention. And she knows that this is painful for Hannah. She's nitpicking. Every chance she sees Hannah's weak, she provokes her even more. Panina is emotionally abusing Hannah, who is already probably abusing herself. We... Humankind, we, do a smashing job of beating ourselves up and heaping unnecessary things upon ourselves who are already 
fragile beings. I imagine Hannah being a lot like most of us today. I imagine that she is already reading this verse as Elkanah put it. God had closed her womb and she's translating it as if God has said, you aren't good enough. We do that to ourselves. We look at ourselves and tell ourselves lies that we aren't good enough. And poor Hannah spends the day. I want you to know when I say the family dynamics, they're in the same household right here. Each day she has children passing her that are not of her womb, that are constant reminders of this other woman. And yes, I'm referring to Panina as the other woman. I want you to see what this was like for Hannah. It wasn't easy. For Hannah, we've discovered that both lover and provoker treat her the same way as God forsaken. Elkanah is a religious man. He traveled each year to participate in a time for family worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. This is similar to our yearly vacations that you look forward to taking, getting out in nature with your family, getting away from everything, giving thanks for what you have. But for Hannah... This time in which you give thanks for the children that you've born, this legacy that you're leaving, it's excruciating for her. This is a childless burden for Hannah. And in addition to daily reminders that the children of the house are not hers, Each year during this trip of sacrifice and praise, Panina would provoke her, reminding her throughout that long walk each day. And Hannah would weep and walk and weep and walk. She would not eat. Year after year, Hannah wept through this event. Now, some spouses today would say that there are things that their spouse just doesn't understand. After reading verse 8, where it reads, Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? It's obvious that Elkanah doesn't get it. He does not understand. He doesn't get her pain. He doesn't get her feelings. He has kids. He's not looked at as God forsaken in his community. He's also not looked at as only good for bearing children in his community. His value 
is not based on this one thing. And while he may mean well, he places himself, not Hannah, as the center focus. He does not tell Hannah that she is worth more to him than ten sons. Instead, he is supposed to mean more to her than ten sons. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why she's sad, why she would cry, how come she has lost her appetite. As we move on, we're presented with the heart of our story today. The narrative moves from what happens year after year to the events of a particular year when Hannah left the sacrificial meal and presented herself before the Lord. She makes a vow to the same Lord of hosts that Elkanah makes sacrifices to each year. And Hannah vows, if she is given a male child, he will be a Nazarite, one who is separated from the others by abstaining from alcohol and abstaining from cutting his hair. And while Nazarite vows were not typically lifelong vows, Hannah, just like in the story of Samson, vows a lifelong commitment. While pouring her heart out to God, while on the floor making these promises to God, weeping uncontrollably, For all her heart has gone through. Eli, the priest at Shiloh, mistakes her for being drunk. Here, in the middle of the day, this woman is on the floor. Glassed over eyes from crying so hard. Her mouth is moving like she's crazy, like she's talking to herself. Eli, who has probably worked there for a while, has probably seen a lot. It's probably not the first time that he's had someone get drunk and make a fool of themselves there in public in front of everyone. So what does he do? He goes to her in this public space where she's humiliating herself and tries to stop her. Assuming that she's drunk. Hannah. Hannah comes before him. Crying out to the Lord. Saying, of course I'm not drunk. I might be delirious in pain. My heart being hurt. But I'm crying out to God. And she shares with him. The petition that she is crying out for, what she is wanting, the desire of her heart. And after she explains herself, he tells her to go in peace. The God of Israel will grant the petition that you have made of him. As we skip on down to our second scripture text this morning, a much shorter text, no funny names or places, you'll notice some of the same characteristics. 
He looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. Now, this passage about a widow is mentioned immediately after the scribes devour widows' houses, just in the previous verses before it. Which raises the question, does Jesus praise this widow for her generosity in giving all that she has to live on? Or is Jesus lamenting that in giving all she had, she's become a victim to the temple system? The scribes take even the widows' houses, but the widows give even their last two coins to the Lord. The widow gives with complete devotion and selflessness. This widow, like Hannah, And all the mothers who are in our lives, all of the women who do the mothering that are in our lives, there's something they all know, and that's faith. We have people among us, people like Jordan Butler and Katie Randolph, who come every JYF afternoon faithfully, to simply spend time and love on and mother our children. Peg Johnston and Don Mundell come every dinky afternoon, faithfully, and they spend time loving and mothering our children. Every Wednesday night, Amy Lester is here engaging in our teens, and making sure they know she loves and cares about them. One bad experience or rough week at any of these events is not enough to keep any of these faithful women from coming back. They care too much and they love too deeply. They understand that working with people, regardless of their age, is hard work but it's the best investment that they can make. Someone spent time with them along the way to shape them into being the people that they are today, and each of them are giving back in their own way now. Loving, shaping, mothering, nurturing, and caring for others so that they can grow and learn and know the love of Christ. We have people all around us that are doing this. Our teachers at our children's schools, your next-door neighbor, our Sunday school teachers, even yourself. In this passage, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. All of them gave out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Even on days when we feel we have nothing left to give, 
Our energy is zapped. Our tempers lack patience. Left my last page. And we've nothing left. Oh, and when nothing has been done quite like the way we planned it. The kids here, the teens here, the adults here, you still love us. You love all of us. You don't seem to mind at all. You don't complain about it because you know that in this safe place, all are loved and all are cared for. Today is Mother's Day, a day we celebrate and a day that we thank the women who have shaped and formed our lives, the faithful women that help us become the best versions of ourselves to become who it is we are today. So today, I encourage each of you to thank the women that have helped to shape and form you, the faithful mothers and motherers who hold a dear place in our hearts for their patience, their love, their steadfast faith. We honor and celebrate them today. May we be good stewards, faithfully investing in all God has given us through the lives of those around us. Happy Mother's Day to you all. And let us sing our hymn of preparation. I'm going to eat at the welcome table. Number 424 from our Red Chalice Hymnals.